What we're doing is we're like not coming in for the hero physique, we're coming in for more of the subtleties that we learn in the yogic philosophy. And um, I'm excited to share this all with you. Uh, this is something that isn't to be mastered in a day or even in 20 plus years of practicing, but it's something that comes along in time and it changes. And that's why I like this book and why I like Judith Laster's book is because it really shows you it changes with what is actually happening in your own personal life experiences. And this book is a really interesting book because um, it used to be only taught from teacher to student by conveying um, you recited a chant and you learned the chant. Now we have all of these incredible books and all these incredible things that we can study online, offline, um, you know, at the bookstore, things you can read on the computer, things you get in your teacher training classes that others start to share with you, um, that you start to learn about the sutras. But for those of you who are just kind of beginning and open up the book um, that you received in your um, teacher training book list and see it as reading a fortune cookie or you fall asleep, it's a really good book to put you to sleep at night, right? Or it's something that you're just like, I'm not a good reader and I'm not really into it. What I would like to do in the next four hours that we had together this week and those two weeks is to really talk about the idea of what the sutras are. And um, I gave you two handouts. Um, and each handout is very different. One is just the collection of aphorisms and one is a cheat sheet for the Yoga Sutras. And this would be exactly for someone like Marcy who's like, wow, yoga felt really good in my body. I'm gonna sign up for this teacher training thing. I have no idea what kind of rabbit hole I'm diving into, but I really, really, really feel like it's a part of me, right? And then there's other people who are like, only come to class because of the philosophy and they're like, that's why Star Wars is so good because it's all based on the Bhagavad Gita, right? <laughs> and they're like totally obsessed with Star Wars. Or, yeah, or, or, yeah. A lot of that philosophy and everything seems like, yeah. Uh, I'm going to have to reread the Bhagavad Gita with a new yes. thought. Yes. Well, the Bhagavad Gita is a part of a bigger book series, the Mahabharata and from the Upanishads. And those texts are pretty amazing, and they're almost like reading Aesop's fables. They're moral stories, and teaching us the golden rules of how to live, and, you know, there's always strife and struggle and family issues, and that you're learning all these cool things, but Star Wars was definitely, definitely taken from it. <laughs> so it's really cool. But I'm excited that you're all here. I'm a huge geek. I'm not wearing glasses. I'm wearing contacts today. But I did start yoga when I was a teenager. I found a cool book in a bookstore of a lady in nylons, practicing yoga in nylons and a leotard. And I was like, oh, this is really cool. And I, it really helped me create connections from some of the disconnects that I was having in my life. And it helped me feel very grounded and anchored in my truth. Because yoga, as we all know, and we come to the mat maybe even only for a week or two weeks, it's a self-regulating practice that you learn through breath and movement how to um, have uh, self-awareness, self-acceptance, um, integration, uh, it works your neurological pathway, so it's a bilateral cross-body functional practice, right, that helps you really stay not only integrated in, like, your thoughts, but integrated in um, your physicality, so, like, all your muscles, your bones, your tissues, um, you have a lot of, like, strength and flexibility and balance that you get from the practice. Kate's like, yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah, 
Oh, well, I'm also the Pilates person. Yeah. Yeah. She did a yoga. It was like yoga, like yeah. And then there was like a TV show, right? Yeah. No, uh, I found a really geeky old book. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, it was like some California book that was like in the, one of those bookstores, like a half price bookstore, but at that time. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then I um, actually in my college, my dance teacher would teach with us. So like I had to take an elective PE class. <laughs> I'm like, I'm taking dance, and we would do yoga. <laughs> but yes, she did teach it. Yeah. Yeah. Did cool. she teach it as yoga? A lot of people don't teach it as yoga, but right. think about it. Yeah, because like what pose is this called? Right? Ganashrisasana. <laughs> and if I was standing on one leg, it's tree pose, right? Yeah. But what do runners do after they run? Right. So then it's called stretching, right? Because it doesn't have the breath incorporated with it. And so that's what's so cool about what we're going to learn through these texts. Let's start to look at our cheat sheets and um, talk about kind of like what we're actually going to be doing together now that they're coming in and out. Can I shut the door? Okay. Um, and let's talk about exactly what we're going to be talking about. What I think is really cool about what the sutras help us with is because I am a geeky girl and I want to know kind of what is all of this movement stuff about, you know, because I could have a dance party or go to a kundalini class and be super excited, but I'm like, why does my brain feel this way? Why does my body feel this way? How come I feel so much more whole, right? And that's because we're going to learn through the sutras these timeless principles that are relatable in the universe. Any kind of um, religious background, any kind of lifestyle upbringing, any kind of world that you came from or live in or any city, state, country that you live in, this is still relatable, right? Yoga sutras are a concise work that describe an early stage in the philosophy and practice of yoga. And this work shows dualist things and Buddhist influences. So I put an appendix. I don't want to get really into dualism that much. But monotheism is the idea of like um, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. So the three main Abrahamic religions where there's only one supreme being, right? And you'll see this in the appendix when you kind of look into it. But dualism or the idea of dual is being twofold, right? So it means that in uh, the Samkhya Vedic yoga philosophy that we're going to talk about, which is a lot of what tantric yoga and kundalini yoga practices are all about, which is based on the energetic system, is a lot about consciousness and matter and seeing them not um, the same, but like actually seeing that there are um, attachment to the phenomenal world of appearances and to be identified as the seer. So that there's two separate entities versus a monotheistic kind of a concept. It's very similar to Buddhism, for those of you who are interested in like Buddhist philosophy. But I don't want you to get hung up on that. I just want you to know that this is an ancient practice that a lot of religions and philosophies and lifestyles base their movements upon. If you're interested in yoga and meditation, the yoga sutras is basically required reading. No one ever told you when you went to like a yoga fit class or a community ed class or like a yoga class here that like you had to read the sutras, right? 
No, it was only when you did like teacher training. But to me, this is really the background as to what we're doing and why we're here. And so I'm really excited that we're doing this. Um, it's said to be the most enlightening spiritual document of all time. It's the guidebook to classical Raja Yoga. What does the word Raja mean in Sanskrit? King. Royal king, right? So it's the regal practice. And it is, um, there's eight limbs of yoga, but there are also eight styles of yoga. We're not going to talk about that, but you've heard of like bhakti, mm -hmm. right? The yoga of love. Um, there's all kinds of different yoga, but one of them is the Raja Yoga. And this practice is um, nearly or over 2,000 years old. And the sutras really, as I was saying in the beginning, because it was passed from teacher to student, it had to be easily kind of memorized. And each word is fraught with significance. So it's 196 compact aphorisms, aphorisms these really, really, really small little um, observations on nature of consciousness and liberation, but like really small sentences so that I could say something and then Rachel would repeat it back to me. And it was passed down teacher to student. And then what was cool about it is like um, that's, that was it. So now we have all these books. And one teacher will believe this thing, and another teacher will believe this thing, because words have so many different meanings to so many different people. And so each, each book that's written about the Yoga Sutras can be interpreted totally different. So one thing that I'm going to repeat over and over and over again in the time that we're together learning about the Yoga Sutras, and as a teacher, that you teach from experience, and you do things from your personal experience. Because there are X amount of people in here, and each one of us are right at this instant having a totally different experience. Right? So we're all perceiving something totally different, but we're all in the same room together here. And so these 196 aphorisms are observations. They're not like, this is how it needs to be done, right? <laughs> but it's like, it's not like Wizard of Oz. But it's, uh, it's just the uh, observations on the nature of consciousness and liberation. For those of you who do like yoga and are into like yoga words and stuff like that, do you know what the word for liberation is in Sanskrit? Ah, moksha, freedom. Moksha. moksha. It is one of my favorite words in Sanskrit. And it is truly why we are here on the mat. We are here to balance and find health and harmony and get rid of pain and suffering. Some people might find it through movement. Some people might find it through the practice of sitting and meditating. Some people might find it by doing headstands and posting on Instagram. I don't care what you like, but if you are doing yoga, you are finding moksha. You are finding the liberation. And it's all based on your experience. Um, what I think is really cool is that Patanjali pretty much, to me, was the first therapist because it cuts to the heart of the human dilemma. Not only are we having different experiences, but I'm sure all of you have either thought about what you're gonna have for dinner, um, how your legs feel sitting in this position, um, what your family is doing, or what your pet is doing, or why aren't we outside in the sunshine? Right, you're all having like thoughts. So this whole practice of bringing consciousness to a state of stillness, you've heard of the monkey mind? This is where this text talks about how to calm the monkey mind. 
What I think is really, really interesting about this habitual practice of yoga, or to me, like the moksha, the liberating practice of it, is that it's a lifestyle. And that yoga, when you're talking about it in this book, it's a path to realization, and it gives us a program on how to fill the primary purposeness of consciousness. But actually, this entire book only talks about, about two to six sutras about movement. It's really a primary text on meditation and how to calm the monkey mind, the chittas and the vrittis, which we'll talk a lot about. It's an inward quest to realize our true nature, and that's why I think Patanjali was like, this is a very therapeutic kind of thing to help really make you realize you are not your thoughts and to get yourself to calm down and find ease and balance. It was a way to extract happiness and contentment, and that Sanskrit word is santosha, which we'll talk about a lot in here because this is where it comes up. So it's a way to extract happiness and contentment and meaning from the mysteries of life, consciousness, and morality. And one thing that we'll find out here, because this is a dualistic practice, is that pure awareness resides impervious at the core each and every kind of sensation, thought, and feelings whether we see it, which is vidya, our true identity, or not, which is the avidya, the ignorance. And the routes to knowing this freedom fully is yoga. Mm, what do you know about the word yoga or yoga? To yoke, to unite, right? So in, in, in India, or like if you talk to a Hindu scholar or someone who teaches Sanskrit, it's not yoga, because that's like how we talk and say it in in the States, but it's yoga. It's like yoga. yoga. So it is, it's like, it's literally like you're saying yoke or something like that. But it's to create this harmonious unity. Um, and so I really, really want you to um, um, think about the idea of the word yoga and now the word sutra. So when people are like talking about the yoga sutras, I gave you a little definition of what the sutras are so that you really can start to think about it really in an interesting way. Sutra is a word of wisdom, and sutra is derived from the verbal writ siv, meaning to sew. So it's like a thread, a string, a lace, or a line that holds things together, which is really cool because a lot of times I think about my ribs, and maybe this will make you think more about how breath work is so integral to movement in yoga versus stretching and doing janushri sasana to stretch because then it's just stretching but if you incorporate breath and movement together and you stitch that breath through your body you are creating liberation because you're tying everything together it's interconnected so when you inhale your ribs are expansive and then when you exhale everything stitches together and you release the toxins and you inhale starting again to create a new moment, but also to give yourself the opportunity to kind of like create space and freedom and ease. So you're always beginning again, threading these words of wisdom through your body, through the breath. So yoga is, might not even be about the movement of it, but how can you be harmonious, how can you be balanced just by being present to the breath? So then when you think of yoga sutra, it has so much more of a, a profound meaning because then you're creating wholeness by stitching things together and integrating. Because if you're not aligned in your truth, you're kind of effed, right? 
So um, if I stood in Tadasana, and Tadasana means I am here, I am present, but I have one foot going this way and one foot going this way, what's going to happen? Hmm. Right, I'm totally asymmetrical, nothing's drawing to the midline, and if my feet were in two different boats, I'd be going in two different directions. So would I be an active, conscious, integrated whole person? No, I'd be very skittish. But if I am in Tadasana, and I am standing in my truth, and I am truly aligned if everything's coming to the midline, and I'm strong, and I'm not like having um, improper posture or pelvic alignment, then all of a sudden I'm practicing yoga. Just literally by standing, right? And that's what's so cool about what we're going to learn together here is that the sutras teach you the wisdom of diving into your own consciousness to find center. Pretty cool is, has anybody ever seen Patanjali walking down the street? No? Me either. You see um, any sculptures of a, a, a thing that's called Patanjali? No? Oh, so cool, I brought a picture. Um, this is Patanjali. And I'll pass this around. But what's interesting is that Patanjali to me is the first celebrity yogi. Could you imagine if, like, Patanjali had a Snapchat? Whoa, he'd be more important than, like, one of those Hollywood people or those made-famous people by having a sex tape. <laughs> and he could even have, like, a TV show, right? But it was the first celebrity yogi, and the personal history is shrouded in mystery and myth, so I like to think that it could be a he or it could be a she, we don't really know, or a collective of individuals. But the, obviously the picture there is, and what we see in the Hindu deity and the sculptures, is a man. The practitioners believe that he lived in the 2nd century BCE, and it was a Renaissance person, and wrote about the science, Ayurveda, and Sanskrit. Okay, that's really cool, right? Because what we do in yoga, to me, is we are alchemists. We are magicians. You are a magician of your body. You can heal yourself from the inside out. So, um... You're learning about science, you're learning about Ayurveda, you're learning about Sanskrit, and all of these things affect you. So you, as teachers, are Renaissance people because you're pulling from disparate elements to create wholeness. You're not just saying, like, it has to be this one way, but you're combining a bunch of different things together. It could be that you like to eat turmeric, and then you're an Ayurvedic, you know, then you're interested in Ayurvedic philosophies and principles. It could be that you are interested in the science and the neuroscience of why you come to the mat. And then all of a sudden you become a scientist. How cool is that, right? And then it could be that you are interested in the Sanskrit. Did you know that if you say the Sanskrit words, because of the resonance and the intonation of the word, if you are saying it properly, it has a more profound effect. It's like a mudra, which you hold in your hand and it lasts for six hours. A yoga practice lasts energetically in your body for 24 hours, but if you say something, it has the same resonance that it affects your neurological pathways. <coughs> That's really amazing. So we are, by 
default Renaissance people as we practice yoga, because like Patanjali, we're combining Ayurveda, science, and Sanskrit. So this person was credited with expounding yoga's teachers and write, teachings and writing them down, and they used to be passed down orally from teacher to student. So have you ever heard of the idea of a guru? And do you know what the word guru means? Would you like me to share with you? Okay. So guru means out of the darkness and into the light. Has anybody ever told you to jump off a bridge or do this because you need to? Or do it because I said so? Or you've heard about people who follow someone because they're so charismatic, right? And then they call them their guru? Uh, guru, out of the darkness is into the light, is that it's within you. That you trust yourself, that you start to really see that the guru is within. And that because this is your experience, you are the guru. But you have to get all that kind of cruddy stuff that your brain likes to mess with you with to bring you into this space of you learn from a teacher, but the teacher is not the person who is going to truly be you, right? So that the guru becomes the spark that then helps light your own internal flame. Does that make sense? Satguru. Satguru. Kind of. We'll talk about it in here in a little bit, but... Yeah, the idea of guru, I guess what I'm saying here is that he was considered a guru, but he gave these really amazing golden rules of how to live so that anybody could be their own guru and anybody could do it, which I think is pretty cool. The outcome to me of what this book is is that it was from a cooperative group effort that spanned several generations. So I like to think that it wasn't just one individual but it was a bunch of people who collectively, over time, created this really good synthesis of how to find balance in your life. And remember, all of this is my experience. I'm just sharing with you my opinions, but it is an opinion. It doesn't mean that it's right. I want you all to have your own opinions. I'm just sharing with you and giving you some insight that you can use at your own will. <coughs> Patanjali itself, the word is pretty cool. Um, pata means falling down. And Anjali, what's this? Anjali mudra, right? So consciousness coming into you, right? So the idea is that Patanjali can be roughly translated as falling from heaven and offering sacred knowledge coming from the heart. I always think that when you put your hands in front of yourself, you're acknowledging the balance and the harmony that we're creating when we practice, but also that you're holding the preciousness of your heart in the hands. Do you ever see students go like this? <laughs> like they're going to have a big poopy? <laughs> well, the idea is that we're really holding the preciousness of our heart in our hands so that there's space, there's air, there's, it's very organic, right? Because we're using so much of those... Um, energetic principles to work with our practice, but that we are literally holding the preciousness of our heart in our hands through the experience um, as we're offering sacred knowledge that's coming from the heart. 
And then the cool thing about that picture that I was passing around is that um, Patanjali sits on a three-coiled snake. Why do you think that is? Right? right, so how many of you have seen a caduceus, a catechus, a symbol for a doctor? Yes. Oh, oh. it starts to make sense, eh? The first, second, third chakra. So what's the first one on the second and the third one? It's all about survival, grounding, feeling stable, right? But we have to uncoil the serpentine snake in order to find wholeness. So this practice of yoga that Patanjali, words coming down from heaven, is talking about is that we're uncoiling all, and the Yiddish words, mishigas, all the craziness. We're uncoiling it so that our mind doesn't control us, so that we can open up to higher states of consciousness. So if you've ever seen the catechus, I, always, I don't know if I'm pronouncing it right, but um, the snakes meet at what we call as yogi's chakra point. Right? So nadis, there's over 72,000 meridian lines of energy in our body, but the major intersection or points that we're hitting are the chakras. When these snakes that we see in that picture of the doctor symbol meet at the top, that round ball, that's our brain. Right? And then if we're in our prefrontal cortex and out of our fight or flight brain, and we've moved from the basement to the higher states of being, we've opened up wings which means that anything is possible because we, can, we have enough power in our bodies to power a nuclear bomb. We have enough energy to take someone to the moon, right? We have enough brain power to come up with really interesting things, but we have to be in Tadasana. We have to be aligned. So we have to have good morals and principles and ethics and things to live by so that we can truly be moksha, freedom, and then in turn, anything's possible. We just have to really focus into it. And that's what's so cool about what we're learning here is that we're uncoiling. And then there's all kinds of other little symbols here that we can talk about later. But the interesting thing about it to me is that all of everything that you're going to learn here is how to open up to your experiences between, instead of being closed down so that you can really find um, and blossom 10,000 fold. Cool. And that's why the person who did Red Bull said Red Bull gives you wings. Because they're not doing yoga, but they like took something to make their brain be more like... You know, it's like taking, um, what's that thing called, Adderall? And everybody's like, I can get so much shit done. And I'm just like, really great. But yoga is the best drug you will ever take. And that's what we're going to learn here. And the last key concept that I really want you to leave with um, is that the idea of purusha, which is consciousness, and property, which is matter. And um, in order to be at home with all experiences and things as they are, we have to find balance, right? So there's a saying, shtira sukha asanam. Let's all say that together. Shtira sukha asanam. And it either means motion and stillness or effort and effortlessness. And I think this is a really interesting thing because when you practice hatha yoga, what does ha mean? <coughs> Sun. 
And what does ta mean? <coughs> and they do what with each other? They balance each other up. You will find so many things and references in our practice to balance. Symmetry, harmony. How many people have ever practiced Ashtanga Yoga? There's a posture at the end of pose, where at the end of class, where you cross your legs into lotus pose, you press down into your hands, and you lift your feet up off the ground. It's called Polasana. It's also called Uplifti. But that pose is really interesting because it is called scales pose. And it's supposed to symbolize the ancient scales of uh, the lawyers. You know, like, have you ever seen that scale of a lawyer? And that's pretty much what you're doing when you're learning all this stuff. Shirasuka asana. You don't want to be a noodle that's too, like, wet and limp and overcooked. And you don't want to be a noodle that's, like, too hard that when you bite into it, you crack a tooth, right? When you're cooking pasta, you want, like, al dente. So it's, like, perfect. And that's pretty much what you want to do when you're practicing. You're balancing out the ha and the ta so that you can find equanimity. So the idea of effortless effort is what we're learning here. But everything that we're doing is about balance. So if you never read the Yoga Sutras, you at least know now what is your little cheat sheet on what it is all about and where it comes from. Cool? Mm -hmm. All right. I want you to think about the idea that these timeless principles are relatable. Really, really relatable. But what happens is when you try to bring them in as teachers to the yoga mat, it can get a little bit heady. So you don't have to make it heady, right? You can make it really understandable. Um, and that if we really work from the framework that pranayama and meditation are going to change the world, then, then you will find a way from your personal experiences to communicate the yoga sutras to, to your students. And then those students will come. The first book that we're going to talk about is called Samadhi Pada. So if we turn on the cheat sheet um, pamphlet to book one, Samadhi Pada, it's about integration or concentration. And this is a chapter on Samadhi or cognitive absorption. Patanjali opens with the big picture, which is a roadmap to where we're going, to the state of Samadhi itself. Um, so Samadhi is the last limb on the eight-limb path, right? Okay, so let's all say it together. Samadhi. Samadhi. Pada. And then we're going to turn to the second little handout. And the coolest thing about our practice together <coughs> is that you are going to read the Yoga Sutras and you will never say, I've never read the Yoga Sutras. We're going to read it together. <coughs> I have like a tickle. Um, Book one on concentration on page one. Now then, yoga is being explained. Sarah, would you like to go? Yeah, I'm going to read this. Uh, nope, Next, this one. Oh, yeah. No, that's okay. Number two. Yoga is the suppression of the modifications of the mind. Then the seer abides in itself. Thanks, Pamela. That other times the seer appears to assume the form of a modification. They, modifications, fall in five varieties, of which some are this uh -huh. and the rest are 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I'm not big on and recollections. 